0: Hello and welcome back to The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. My name is Zaid Wahab and today will be our final episode on the acclaimed Hisham ibn Abdul malik Having already discussed the Caliphate's borders, we will focus on its heartlands this time and mention some of the Arab rebellions that the Caliph had to contend with. After that, we'll say a few words about the man himself and finally turn our attention to the critical issue of his succession, all in episode 36, Hisham and the Arabs. I'll be honest with you, listener. I don't love the job I've done covering Hisham's long reign. On the one hand, it was so eventful that I felt a piecemeal approach was the only option, but now I feel like we may have missed the impressive span of his achievements by breaking them up the way we did. Anyway, just in case I've failed to convey this so far, or if it's somehow gotten lost in the weeds of our multi-episode approach, Hisham was an outstanding renewer of Umayyad authority on par with his father abdul malik and the controversial but uncontroversially exceptional Muawiyah. Despite Hisham's brilliance, he faced substantial opposition both from without and within his realm. If you're thinking, hold on, why would a great leader have to deal with internal dissent, then I applaud you for paying attention and redirect that attention to the previous three caliphs, with a special emphasis on the last of them, Yazid II. Hisham's predecessors really mucked things up before he took charge, and it was this perception of waning Umayyad power which encouraged foreign foes who sought to expel the Arabs and domestic ones who hoped to replace the Ummah's leading clan. Our focus today will be on the latter, which fall into two broad categories, various Karajite groups and different offshoots of the lost Hashemite cause. Our sources overwhelmingly describe the differences among all the Ummah's groups as doctrinal, but that's a description I feel the need to explain away. I remain unconvinced that Islam had any sects at this early stage, something which, to me at least, would have necessitated multiple religious traditions. To my eyes, all the Ummah's splits thus far were political, and they are only regarded as religious because that was the language through which the political was expressed. I worry that an abstract discussion of this point will get a little too unwieldy, so let's ground it with some familiar enemies of the state. The Karajites are the obvious example. But let's get specific because this label was applied to anyone who broke away from the Ummah. Consider the original group who rebelled against Ali bin Abi Talib's command after the stalemate at Sufeen between his forces and Muawiyah's, the ones he debated at length while awaiting the arbitration between the Syrians and the Iraqis. This bunch wanted to fight Muawiyah again as soon as possible, and when Ali reminded them that the Prophet had counseled Muslims to appeal to the Quran during a dispute, they responded by saying that they did not consider anyone fighting for Muawiyah a Muslim. They claimed that Muawiyah had abandoned the faith through his own sinful behavior. So already you can see that religious is being used to express political aims. Their religious framework represented a clear sign of decay in Arab unity, as its whole purpose was to legitimize the spilling of Muslim blood by separating the wrong Muslims from the right ones. Other Kharijite groups towed the same line. During the second fitna, everyone was calling everyone else an infidel to justify fighting them. This was even the case in the Maghrib, where the Karajite thought of the Sufriya united the Berbers against the Caliphate. It's telling that the rebellion did not take place until well after this ideology was widespread among the locals, giving them something to unite around. We could cover other Karajite groups, but I think you get the point. Whenever any tribes or communities got tired of the caliphate's increasingly heavy-handed treatment, they declared that the state's actions went beyond the pale, and that the hypocrites in charge weren't Muslims at all. After that, whoever was heading the rebellion would claim the mantle of pious leadership, thus justifying their political power grab in religious terms. Besides the Great Barbar Rebellion, Hisham faced Karajite uprisings in Yemen, Oman, and Khurasan, and smaller agitations in Iraq and Egypt. None of the Arab uprisings met with any success, and even Hadith's Mawadi-heavy movement in the East was eventually subdued. The rhetoric was remarkably similar from the first Karijites all the way down. Sure, there were differences between them, and various heterodox ideas are attributed to each, but I still find their grievances to be wholly political, merely expressed in these religious terms. There is one exception. I have to admit that Mukhtar al-Taqavi's short-lived stint in Kufa does indeed take enough boxes for me to consider him the founder of Islam's first sectarian community. He was that nobody who declared himself caliph in the Iraqi city during the second fitna, claiming to have been chosen by the son of Ali bin Abi Talib, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, who himself was chosen by God to guide mankind to salvation before the end of times. This double chosenness he introduced The millenarian or apocalyptic vibe he nurtured and a slew of other religious innovations were so unfamiliar to other Muslims that we get bewildered descriptions of some of their tenets in our sources. There are odd passages about Muqdar's sermons to his flocks in which he uses his dreams as prophecies, and one weird pre-battle custom where an empty chair was lifted high and prayed to as it was carried around the room to ensure victory. We should keep in mind that our mainstream sources look down on anything unorthodox, and Mukhtar is thus treated with very little pity. The hostility makes it even more difficult to tell what was going on. For example, the bit about the hoisted chair is sometimes cited as proof that Mukhtar was a Jewish agent trying to take Islam down from within, a familiar trope by this point. It's clear that most Arabs remained unsympathetic towards his vision of Islam, but it nonetheless spread east from Kufa, across Iraq, Iran, and beyond. The Qaysanites were one of many marginal groups which identified with elements of Mukhtar's ideas, and while they have several names, the ones used most often to refer to all these groups is Hashimiyya, alluding to their belief that they had championed the Hashimite Muhammad ibn al We don't know much about how these beliefs evolved, but we are told that they were especially popular among the Mawadi, who never forgot how Mukhtar had held them as equals to the Arabs when he was in power. These Hashemiya did not try to lead a rebellion against the Umayyads, but it's important to keep in mind that the mistreatment of the Mawadi at the hands of the Arabs led many of the new converts in the east to adopt anti-Umayyad stances. This preference for the Hashemites was probably encouraged after the pacification of Kufa under al-Hajjaj, which pushed ex-supporters out further east where they contrasted the caliphate's cruelty to their idealistic visions of Hashemite justice. I am dwelling on this a little because the popularity of the Hashemite cause among the Mawadi in the east is fated to play a decisive part in Arab politics. So that makes two groups, the Karajites and the Hashemiya, both umbrella terms referring to multiple parties which held similar sounding ideas. Roughly speaking, the Hashemiya were mostly the Mawadi who supported the replacement of the Umayyads with the Prophet's clan, believing the Hashemites to have been divinely chosen for the role. The two final Arab ideological groups we need to discuss today both also based their claims upon the unique legitimacy of the Prophet's clan, the first being the Hashemites themselves. Let's take a quick look back. The Hashemites had maintained their political quietism since their infamous massacre in the days of Yazid I. Since then, multiple clan leaders, all descendants of Ali bin Abi Talib and the Prophet's daughter Fatima, had stayed away from politics and leaned heavily on the clan's religious identity instead. After Ali's children, Al Hassan and Al Hussein, came Hussein's descendants. His son Ali was the only survivor of the Hashemite massacre, and his title Zayn al Abidin meant "Best of the Believers" because of his inimitable piety. His son Muhammad succeeded him, and his title Al Baqir is difficult to translate. A clumsy but adequate attempt is, quote, the one with unabridged religious knowledge. Many sources say Al-Baqir died during Hisham's reign, and of course there are multiple accounts of how it happened, some accusing the caliph of poisoning the religious leader, but that's nothing we haven't heard before. Anyway, after him came his son, Jafar al-Sadr, Jafar the Honest, who will prove so influential that we will have to cover him in much greater detail than his predecessors, though mercifully not today. So why are we talking about the Hashemites if they were all so thoroughly apolitical? Well, here's the thing, one of them wasn't. Late in Hisham's reign, around 740 AD, Jafar's uncle chose to rebel against Umayyad authority. Zayd, the son of Ali Zayn al-Abidin, rose up against the ruling clan and seems to have had some secret correspondence with supporters in Kufa who promised to stand with him. There are conflicting narratives about how it all went down, but the rebellion was easily snuffed out by Hisham's brutal governor of Iraq, a man named Yusuf al thaqafi who I'll tell you about more in a minute. Zayd's son Yahya escaped to Khurasan and tried leading another rebellion from there, but was stopped by that province's capable governor, Nasr bin Sayyar. Jafar al-Sadiq, leader of the Hashemites, stuck to precedent and refrained from supporting his uncle's rebellion, probably saving the clan from another bloody massacre. The final group we need to talk about has the most complicated backstory, but don't tune out on me now, they will be of crucial importance to the Ummah's future. Our sources first mention them during Suleiman's badly documented reign, but these earliest durations are unreliable, so let's circle back to them later. While they probably did not exist back then, they were definitely a thing by Hisham's time because we're told that his governor of Khurasan executed a number of their supporters so like most of the messes this caliph had to mop up, they organized sometime during the mismanagement of his predecessors. I have intentionally avoided naming them because that's how it was for a while. Nobody knew who they were or what exactly they were after. They operated in secret, and it seems like they had recruiters across the Ummah who approached those with clear anti umayyad sympathies. After a new member had proven they could be trusted, they would only be told that they were now part of a group working towards righting the caliphate by returning the Prophet's clan to power. No other details would be provided, and it is likely that most of these recruiters didn't know much more than this themselves. Like all their own followers, they had to await orders from the men who had once recruited them. Pretty shadowy, no? Our sources have fun with it, too. Some contain vague religious allusions while others make it sound like a fully formed political vision just waiting for the right moment to burst out on the scene. This phenomenon was mostly referred to as the Dawah, Arabic for the summons or the call. Despite their best efforts, the caliph's men could not find the elusive figures behind it, and their true identity won't become public knowledge until a big reveal years down the line. But I won't leave you in suspense like that. Let's have our own unveiling by covering their transparently fake origin story. The da'wah was first mentioned in a suspicious narration during Suleyman's reign. Apparently the caliph got a visit from a son of Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah, who, quick reminder, was the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib, although not from the Prophet's daughter Fatima. This Hashemite both impressed and worried Suleyman with his enlightened demeanor and the caliph became convinced that this pious and eloquent man could reclaim the ummah's leadership for his clan if left unchecked. So like all evil Umayyads, he had the guy poisoned. But in order to obscure his involvement, he used a slow-release poison. So Ibn al-Hanafiyah's son would die days after having departed his court. The doomed Hashemite chose to pass by some kin on the way back though, the descendants of Adi's cousin Abdullah ibn al-Abbas. He was feeling feverish when he arrived and told them that he believed he had been poisoned by the Caliph and would not be long for this world. Just before passing away, he bequeathed to his hosts the right to leadership of the Ummah. Despite how widely reported the story is, it has way too many obvious problems to be anything but apocryphal. It is simplistic, conveniently set in Suleiman's badly recorded reign, and it barely makes any sense. Since when did the Arabs just pass on inherited rights to cousins in secret ceremonies? Muawiyah had to insist over and over again that he was the one who had the right to avenge his cousin, and even after victory in the first fitna and decades of success, one of Othman's sons still posed a serious risk to his legitimacy. Hell, the Prophet himself had a whole goodbye speech where he told everyone assembled that Ali was to be considered his heir in all things, and his cousin was still denied leadership. Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah was never even considered Ali's true heir or the clan's leader in any way. So we're just supposed to buy that his son could pass on something as essential as the Hashemite claim to power to his cousins in some deathbed scene? No, and I am not alone in thinking that this whole narration was propagated later to lend the calling an air of tribal and religious legitimacy. The problem is that if we disbelieve this narration, we can't readily find an alternative to explain what started the da'wah so we might as well succumb to the myth. These descendants of Abdullah ibn abbas the Abbasids for short, were the ones responsible for the Dawa. In a bid to keep the Quraysh from trying something like this, Walid ibn Abdul Madik had ordered most of the tribe's prominent clans to live in Greater Syria, where his loyalists could keep an eye on them. Unable to leave their luxurious grounds in Jordan, the Abbasids put their trust in 12 deputies, a tight-knit group eight of whom were from the same clan, who were probably the only ones who knew the true identity of the men they worked for. These deputies spread out across the caliphate, recruiting recruiters and so on. They sent each other letters in secret and sometimes met during the Hajj, but they mostly operated independently and kept a low profile. We get some mentions of the Dawah and Omar and Yazid's reigns, short accounts about how agents of the call managed to evade the authorities mostly by posing as traitors, or by impressing them with religious knowledge or some other clever means. These underground agents come across more like proselytizers than revolutionaries, and they leaned really heavily on religious arguments. It was a convenient method of drawing questions away from their actual political designs. Nobody but those at the top levels of the Dawah's hierarchy knew which Hashemites were behind it. This played greatly into the Abbasid's advantage, and their cause managed to attract support from across the spectrum of pro-Hashemite ideologies. Most people probably assumed that the movement was calling for the pious Jafar al-Sadiq, the clan's leader, to assume control of the caliphate. Even their suspicious backstory about Suleiman poisoning the son of Ibn al-Hanafiyyah, who then passed the torch onto the Abbasids, seems to have been designed to attract as much support from the Hashemiya as possible the Mawadi who believed that Ibn al had been divinely chosen to lead the Ummah. We've already mentioned most of the rebellions Hisham faced from these groups. By definition, anyone who tried rebelling against Umayyad authority was labeled a Karajite, and these typically took place on the outskirts of the caliphate, especially parts that didn't need massive armies to face foreign enemies, places like the south of the Arabian Peninsula and Morocco. Since the Hashemites didn't actively conspire against the Umayyads, Their supporters posed much less of a threat than the Karajites. The Hashemiya Mawali were perennially dissatisfied with the Umayyads, and they did sometimes join rebellions against the Caliphate, but it had more to do with resisting Arab supremacy than championing the Prophet's clan. The rebellion led by the Hashemite Zayd ibn Adi was the first in a generation. It was sudden, short-lived, and fizzled out when the Kufin support Zayd expected never materialized. The Abbasid Dawa remained a passive threat which eluded the Caliph's men throughout Hisham's reign. Its strategy of playing the long game, to simply wait and continue to build up power and supporters was entirely new to the Umayyads and their response was wholly inadequate. So having been around for a few short decades, the Da'wah continued to grow in the shadows and will return to it when the time comes for it to make its move. All right. So now that we are done with the various Arab dissidents, let's turn our attention back to the Caliph in Damascus, or rather Rusafah. Hisham liked the location and climate of a town in Syria once known to the Byzantines as Sergiopolis, and he built his court and palaces there. During his reign, the area came to be known as al-Rusafah, Arabic for the splendid or brilliant, in reference to the buildings he erected. Hisham was clearly an intelligent and capable leader and stories about him in our sources make him out to be a serious man, somewhat dictatorial and quite humorless. One trait he repeatedly gets accused of is stinginess, though that may not have been a bad thing, considering that we don't hear about bankruptcy during his time, while his generous predecessor ruined the Ummah's finances. Although our sources rarely discuss these affairs, even they praise Hisham's sound management of the treasury. Hisham did have a passion for everything equine, though, and he spent great sums building large stables and racing grounds, amassing a personal collection of over 4,000 horses. Pretty harmless as far as royal hobbies went. As usual, al-Mas'udi has the funniest descriptions of the caliph. He starts his section on the caliph's personal traits with, Hisham was cross-eyed, rough, rude, and dour. He amassed money and used it to build the land and buy horses. He then provides a story about the caliph embarrassing himself publicly, and some amusing scenes of extreme stinginess. I'll share a couple, because they're kind of funny. This one time the caliph hosted a party at his place, and his kin started plucking and eating fruits straight from his delightful garden's many trees, which really ticked Hisham off. When one guy told the caliph that God had truly blessed him, Hisham erupted, yelling, How has he blessed me if you're the one stuffing your face? Party over. And for good measure, the caliph ordered everything be uprooted and replaced by olive trees, so no one could just casually munch on the fruits of his labor like that ever again. In another story, the caliph tried to reward a man who brought him a pair of rare birds by giving him the uglier one back. Isn't that hilarious? I am honored by your gifts. You may take the ugly one and leave. There was one family tradition which Hisham could not resist. He attempted to install his son as next in line. Literally every Umayyad since the first fitna had done the same Marwan, Abdul Malik, Walid, Sulaiman, Omar, and Yazid. But only the first two had pulled it off. Or maybe two and a half. Yazid left the caliphate to Hisham, but he also designated his own son, Walid, as Hisham's successor. It was a little over halfway into his reign that Hisham began pushing to replace Walid with his son, Maslama. Walid wouldn't budge, and it didn't help that Walid and Maslama were actually close friends drinking buddies, in fact. Unlike the caliph's children, who were kept busy with command responsibilities, Walid did nothing but party as he awaited his turn at the head of the table. Hisham tried to convince Walid to step aside, and when he failed he tried getting other Umayyads to help. His strongest ally in this was his half-brother Maslama, but even together they could not force Walid's hand. The caliph stopped trying to replace his nephew, and accepted that Walid would be his successor following Maslama's death in the late 730s. While their collaboration did not yield the desired results, it had the inadvertent effect of pushing the Caliph closer to the Adnanis who had surrounded Mustama, and it was around this time that Hisham began displaying strong favoritism towards them in his administration. He replaced his governor of Iraq, Khalid al-Qasri, with the staunchly Adnani Yusuf ibn Omar al thaqafi in 738, and Yusuf's first move was to arrest and torture Khalid to dispossess him of all his wealth. Khalid by this point had become close to the Qahtanis, and Yusuf's actions sent a clear message to that side of the tribal feud that nobody was out of reach. Some accounts say that Hisham allowed this because Khalid had not supported his bid to have his son be next in line, but the practice of an incoming governor stripping his predecessor of all his wealth in this violent fashion had sadly become the norm. The caliph granted Khalid sanctuary at his court in Rusafa after this ordeal was over a couple of years later, so there couldn't have been bad blood between the two. Iraq's new governor was not only related to al-Hajjaj, he also shared his ancestors' penchant for brutality. He executed all sorts of Arabs, especially Qahdani's and those with pro-Hashemite views. It was a couple years into his tenure that the Kufans wrote to Zayd, promising to support him if he rose up against the Umayyads. I haven't told you much about his rebellion because there isn't a lot we can be sure of. It took place in Kufa and he was failed by his supporters. Some accounts say that while the city had plenty of pro-Hashemite folks, they couldn't agree among themselves, and a few of them denied Zayd their support because they found his beliefs to be different from theirs. Others say that Yusuf had terrorized the Kufans so thoroughly by that point that when push came to shove they did not dare oppose him. Zayd suffered a terrible fate, and he was first crucified, then quartered by the savage Yusuf. Hisham immensely weakened the Ummah's unity by appointing Yusuf, and even though he had years to realize and correct this mistake, he did no such thing. Instead, he continued to name Adnanis to various positions with little regard to the tribal rift, an issue he had paid close attention to before. It's anyone's guess why he acted like this now, and mine is that he was bitter about having failed to install his son as his successor. Not all the Adnanis he empowered were unfit. For example, Masar ibn Sayyad and Khurasan was perfect for the job. Yusuf, however, was so bad an influence that he almost single-handedly widened the ummah's many fault lines, and his partisanship inflamed the tribal feud way beyond what it had ever been. It's difficult to blame a single figure for this wide-ranging and long-standing rift in the community, but men like Yusuf make it a whole lot easier. I think we've done it. It's taken us four episodes, but we have mentioned all the major themes and narrations about Hisham's reign. It's difficult to look back and pick a single achievement that defined his legacy. He successfully dealt with so many different challenges, most of which posed existential threats to the Ummah. He safeguarded the caliphate from the many foes that lined its borders, resuscitated its finances from a dismal state, and he kept its Arabs in line under Umayyad rule. He couldn't hold on to the Maghrib, nor catch the mysterious figures behind the Dawa, but these failures paled in comparison to his triumphs. If his record wasn't perfect, it was at the very least quite admirable. I mean, can you imagine what could have happened if a less attentive Caliph had been in charge? The Khazars could have tore up the Caliphate's north, and the Byzantines would have grown even stronger without the constant raids Hisham kept sending against them. The Berbers could have succeeded at taking the rest of North Africa, the Chinese vassals could have asserted control over all Khurasan, leaving a weakened state for the East's various Karajite movements to take down. I know I'm just putting together all the worst-case scenarios, but it's a sobering reminder of just how bad things could have become without a steady hand at the wheel. The Arabs could have been pushed back to the very edges of their desert, their unity shattered and their power extinguished. Instead, Hisham oversaw a revival of Umayyad dominance worthy of even his illustrious father. Like other caliphs before him, however, the matter of his succession cast a dark shadow over his legacy, especially if you agree with me that it was his failure in this affair which led Hisham towards Adnani bias and the appointment of the divisive Yusuf ibn Umar al-Thaqafi as governor of Iraq. I realize Yusuf's actions aren't directly the caliph's fault, but he does bear responsibility for having empowered the man to begin with. Hisham's final years in charge were by no means the most dangerous the ummah had gone through, but they were his worst. The Berber rebellion had succeeded and ruined the caliphate's west, costing its armies much blood and treasure. Other uprisings had been quashed in Iraq and Khurasan, but the atmosphere was tense in both. Although Yusuf's brutality cowed the Kufans into abandoning Zayd, it was clear that discontent was growing, and with it support for the Hashemites and the threat posed by the Dawah. These weren't insurmountable issues, and Hisham would have probably been able to overcome them all, but he was not immortal, and his successor was a pretty far cry from the experienced caliph. As we say goodbye to Hisham, you should know that we're also saying goodbye to Umayyad control, which will only diminish from this point on. It'll take a minute, but these issues we mentioned and a few new ones brought about by inept administration will eventually overwhelm the next generation of rulers. Join me next time for the start of this downhill ride, here on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.